If a person is being held accountable for a crime, do we need to punish their entire family? Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the In Social Work podcast. I'm Peter Sabota, and it's good as always to have you along. While parental incarceration gets most of the attention, it's really only a part of a series of losses, separations, trauma, and other stressful circumstances experienced by children and families whose parent is involved in the criminal justice system. Think for a minute what it's like to watch your parent being arrested. And that's just the start. On today's podcast, Dior Lindsay discusses her work with the population through the Osborne Association and Family Works Buffalo. She describes what these organizations do, but she's really going to focus on why they do it. Ms. Lindsay will explain what happens to families with incarcerated members and what they need to move forward and thrive despite the circumstances. She will conclude her conversation by offering alternatives to the current approach and comment on the role that social work might be able to play. Dior Lindsay, LMSW, is Program Director, Children and Youth Services at the Osborne Association in Buffalo, New York. We are happy to say she is an alum of the UB School of Social Work. Hi, Dior. Welcome to In Social Work. Hi, Peter. So thanks again for doing this. It's great to have you on. And before I ask you about your work and your agency and the people who you serve, if it's okay, I want to talk a little bit about you. Yeah. So if you could, I'm really curious, how did you come to the social work profession, number one? And also, I'm really curious how you came to working with incarcerated people, their children, and their families. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's go back to all the way when I was a kid. When my brother was 14, he was hit by a drunk driver. And he was in a coma for six months. And, uh, you know, he uh, ended up with a TBI. You know, they told him, you know, he'll never walk again, all this, all that. So he was eligible for different services. And that's how I ended up meeting social workers. Mm. Mm -hmm. But as time went on and, you know, thinking about different services that he was eligible for and ineligible for, you know, it kind of just gave me this passion to want to be involved, to try to do something that. I saw wasn't being done or couldn't be done or, you know, kind of just wanting to get in it, you know, because it, it can make a difference. So it was actually in my last year of uh, undergrad, I was mm. in my uh, violence in the families course mm. at, at Canisius and uh, our uh, professor brought in a social worker and I was like, Oh, that's what I want to do. I had no ah. idea it had a name. Ah, interesting. And, and so then that's when I, you know, applied for, you know, the UB School of Social Work and got in. And then, you know, the rest is history. The rest <laughs> is history. Yes. Yeah. I want to ask you how you came to the work you do now. But 
we know each other a little bit. We we met a number of years ago, but yeah. I, have, I have a recollection. Maybe I'm wrong. Correct me if I am. But were you interested in chemical dependency work there for a while or do I have that completely wrong? No, you have that right. And, oh, wow. um, OK, good. Yeah. <laughs> Interestingly enough, uh, you were one of my professors. I remember that. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so I graduated from UB in 2016 with my MSW. And right out of school, immediately, I started doing inpatient substance use work. Mm -hmm. So I went straight to doing clinical work after, you know, learning about motivational interviewing but of course, other, you know, uh, interventions as well. And uh, I loved definitely doing that work. Mm-hmm. But the opportunity came where, you know, I was doing, you know, a couple of workshops out in the community through the uh, Buffalo Association of Black Social Workers. And mm-hmm. I was approached by folks that were interested in opening up an office of the Osborne Association in Buffalo. So. I interviewed, I got the position, and lo and behold, I am the program coordinator for Osborne's Family Works Buffalo program, and we uh, opened up services in uh, 2019. Yes, congratulations, and thanks for the short story. And, you know, every time I ask somebody that all of our paths to social work or the work that we're doing always have this kind of fateful or unplanned, it seems, journey there. So thank you for telling that. Yeah, sure. Let me just ask, and maybe this is for myself. So here are the moving parts as I see. There's the Osborne Association, Mm -hmm. and then there's the Community Healthcare of Buffalo, and then there's Family Works Buffalo. Mm -hmm. And somehow all of these things are distinct but related could yeah. you walk us through that just so, or walk me through it? Maybe everybody knows about <laughs> me, but could you walk us through that? Like, like maybe even start with, with Osborne and, and how that, you know, who they are, what they do. Yeah. So interestingly enough, I became interested in doing work with kids and families when uh, I was introduced to it through my uh, field placement my first year field placement. So I was like, you know, I don't know. I kind of want to, you know, explore my different options, but nothing with kids and families. And then lo and behold, (laughs) I end up doing all of this work with uh, my late field educator who passed away, uh, Patricia Truesdale. Mm -hmm. She was doing work with uh, infant five-year-olds doing mental health work through Head Start. And that's mm-hmm. when I really got exposed to ACEs mm-hmm. and understanding ACEs adverse childhood experiences. And, you know, once again, through all this community work and and uh, just getting more knowledge through my education about trauma and its effects on children and families. You know, I ended up at the Osborne Association. So Osborne works with children and families affected by parental incarceration, a loved one's incarceration, and anything from arrest to reentry. So it's been around for almost 100 years. Wow. Um, Yeah, it's a well-established organization that's New York City-based. Right. So Mm -hmm. a lot of folks, you know, Western New York haven't really heard 
of it as much, you know, as we continue to grow, you know, that that continues to increase. But Osborne's been around for a significant period of time doing prison based work and also reentry. So from arrest to reentry, whether or not that's through our policy center, OC JAG, doing elder reentry work, children of incarcerated parents work, whether or not that's substance use services, prison, uh, parenting courses. I mean, Osborne does a wow. lot. Yeah, comprehensive. Yeah, very comprehensive when you think about responding to the criminal legal system and different uh, issues that you could face being in it or being, you know, a family member of someone that's in it. And in that mm. sense, you're in it yourself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Osborne's about like, I want to say 400 to 500 employees in five different offices, four in New York City, Bronx, Brooklyn, Harlem and Newburgh, and then the one in Buffalo that I oversee. So we're pretty small, but we're mighty. <laughs> yeah. And the Buffalo the kind of connection somehow is through community health care of Buffalo. How, how does that fit? Like, Yeah, the community health center of Buffalo. Yeah. So, you know, considering the piece about, you know, ACEs and public health. To not see that, you know, incarceration and public health have a very particular intersection. <laughs> in which we can respond, you know, as an agency or, you know, different initiatives within, you know, different organizations or what have you, uh, the Community Health Center was very, very supportive of recognizing that, especially for folks that are getting out of correctional facilities or just recognizing that, you know, health is so important for everyone or everybody. They opened up their doors to us and we have a space there. So that is where we do Mm -hmm. our video visiting. That's where our office is. You know, we're we're located on the fourth floor where we do our, you know, restorative healing circles. That's, I mean, the community health center, and I'll just put in a a, a plug for them too, because I feel like a lot of people don't necessarily know about, like in terms of like how much they do, Mm -hmm. because they have a physical therapist, they have an on-site quest lab. They have primary care, they have pediatric care, they do, they have a dental office, they have a dental suite. They do a lot of different, there's an on-site pharmacy. Hmm. There, there's a lot of stuff in this one center. So it's kind of like a one, one-stop shop for health. That's how we ended up there because thinking about support for children of incarcerated parents, parental incarceration, if I'm not mistaken, is the fourth most common adverse childhood experience so being able to respond to that in a public health way is essential and what what a great fit too i mean just kind of service connections right there so and you work for family works buffalo yeah so that is the title of our program and the name of the buffalo office gotcha all right so now now we got it yeah and You've already mentioned a little bit, I think, right, of of the services that you provide. That's what you were alluding to just a few minutes ago, what you do at your place. And I'd be interested on on what your take on this would be, is that in social work and, you know, at, at around, you know, the UB School of Social Work and really kind of the claim to fame to our profession is this kind of micro, mesro, macro focus. 
you know, we just don't focus on one person. And your work seems, at least it seems to me, to encompass all three of those. Yeah. And, and probably just everything that you do. Is this, is it fair to say that? Absolutely. Yeah, we do. You know, whether or not that's through, you know, our, our youth programming or our video visiting services, whether or not that's through our our trainings, you know, I, I definitely feel that it, it it falls in between all three of the the categories of, of intervention. Let's talk about the people and the families and, and the and the kids that you work with. And I, you know, I'm gonna defer to you by far as the expertise here, but in the limited experience that I have with your target populations, it it does seem that when an individual is punished, if you will, for a crime, we seem to be comfortable with punishing their whole family. Yeah. Yeah. It happens a lot. It happens in the work that I see. Absolutely. You know, our video visiting program has been around for over a decade. I mean, it really skyrocketed in terms of use, you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we were the only resource for families once a shutdown happened and in-person visits weren't happening at correctional facilities. So folks mm-hmm. were freaking out, not knowing, you know, what was going on with their loved ones. Mm-hmm. And um, that, you know, because like I said, our, our office opened up in 2019 in September, actually. So... You know, as we really started to get the ball rolling, the shutdown happened. Mm-hmm. So, you know, isolation on top of already being, you know, significantly isolated within, uh, you know, a correctional facility mm-hmm. uh, was a lot for families to deal with, especially when contact can be challenging. Um, mm. So, yeah. And that's just speaking of how, you know, COVID significantly affected the families. but. You know, from what I've seen, you know, like even going into a facility can be challenging. And, you know, depending on what type of visits you get, whether or not that might be, you know, a, a trailer visit where you're able to be with your family um, in, a, in a different kind of setting versus, you know, whether or not you're in, in a jail correctional facility and you're not really able to like touch your family or hug your kids in a way, you know, Mm. um, kids only understand like my parents not with me. Right. And I can't touch them and I don't know why. So we're able to understand it as adults and put ourselves in the, in the shoes of kids to be able to understand that perspective a little bit more of how difficult and challenging it could be for kids to be in that kind of situation of having a parent that's, that's incarcerated. So like the process of going in a facility itself can be very, very challenging or, or uh, difficult for kids to cope with the process after why aren't they coming with me or like, even like after, you know, so say for instance, you know, uh, a parent goes in 
with a six-year-old, they come out with a 16-year-old, completely different developmental Mm -hmm. stages and different responses and parenting and socialization, you know, for the, for the entire family. Incarceration can have many different uh, effects on families, which is why, you know, definitely the families locked up too for so many different ways. Yeah. And the reason I said it the way I did is because it says, I think, a lot about us as a society, because the conversation is often focused on the person who's incarcerated. Like somehow people who are incarcerated are not family members, parents, or members of families themselves, right? And we we know a little bit about families. We know that, you know, their families are places of intense emotional attachment. We don't always, it's not always happy, but it's certainly oh, yeah. there. People are attached. Tremendous loyalty. Shared histories over time. And when you remove one person, I think everybody trembles. Everybody shakes a little bit. Yeah, especially if that person was the breadwinner. You're talking about significant financial instability for a family. When it comes to having a parent or a, a guardian or a caregiver who is incarcerated, what happens to kids? Yeah. I mean, I think about, I mean, before you even get going, the, you know, where, where my mind went, I mean, kids often see their parent arrested. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually glad that you brought that up. So, we just finished our Safeguarding Children of Arrested Parents project with the Buffalo Police Department. Mm. That was a, I want to say about two year long project in which we were working on safeguarding kids, ways in which we can safeguard kids to try to decrease the trauma that they can experience, present or not, for a parent's arrest. So, yeah. Statewide, there are a couple of different police agencies that have already been trained. So I'll kind of get to that. But so Albany Police Department was trained first and then NYPD had to be trained on safeguarding kids after a law that was put in place. And then at that same time, Buffalo Police was gearing up to do their training, which we facilitated in partnership with the UB Institute on Trauma and Trauma-Informed Care. So Mm -hmm. um, it's definitely a wonderful project. Over 75% of the uh, Buffalo Police Department was trained on how to safeguard kids, how to have those conversations, Mm. and, you know, some different ways in which they can be more responsive. And... Sorry for interrupting. Can I put you on the spot a little bit here? Sure. If you feel comfortable talking about it, I'm curious how, when, when you give, for example, law enforcement folks that kind of training and feedback, and you know, you kind of give them a little bit, you probably don't call it trauma informed, but I, maybe you do. But when you give them that knowledge, are they responsive? Do you think that they get it? Well, I think you be. Institute on Trauma did a really good job of being able to, you know, put it in really easy, 
terms and explanations where anybody of any, you know, level can be really responsive to it and understand it. But uh, one important thing that was a part of the project is that we had a co, well, have, he's still one of our co-trainers because um, we're still training pol- police officers now. We just finished Chiktawaga actually mm. a couple weeks ago. So we have a police trainer with us to kind of be able to bridge that gap mm-hmm. to kind of understand like, well, if you're coming from this perspective, you could do X, Y, and Z, A, B, and C from somebody that has actually done it. So I think that definitely increases ways in which folks that are doing this work day to day can digest it a little bit better. So, um, I mean, BPD has been a wonderful partner in regards to kind of being able to bridge that gap. And in terms of, you know, what can we put in that essential and useful and also based off of the model policy? So actually, they also put in a policy, too. And uh, it's based off of the International Association of Chiefs of Police model policy on safeguarding kit. So any department that decides to do it, the model policy is, you know, just the, the essential framework in which you can use it to apply to whatever place decides to use it. And yeah, it's been a, it's, it's a wonderful project. You know, one of the pieces of the training is like if you're an officer and you arrest somebody during the day during regular school hours, did you ask whether or not they were a parent? And then that <laughs> kid could be coming home to a completely empty house of not having a caregiver. So then they're put into a very precarious situation. Um, so like asking about ki- uh, children at multiple points is one of the things that yeah, we acknowledging they exist. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that that people can be parents, Mm -hmm. but also just recognizing that uh, it can be really difficult. Like all all of them, you know, were able to really take in the information. And some of them were just saying, like, this is what I do every day. This is nothing new. Mm. But yeah, I mean, it can be very traumatic for kids to be able to witness that. Well, I mean, that was my first thought. I mean, and thank you for tolerating that little segue. But I mean, children have different levels of innate resiliency and then develop resiliency. I mean, I understand that. But I can't imagine that maybe what you that what you don't see with with some of the children who you meet are behavioral problems. I've got to think. I didn't do the research, unfortunately, before I, I asked you this question, but I, I also wonder, does it contribute to health problems? And yeah. I, any thoughts? I don't know. I'm kind of just riffing there, but what are your thoughts? No, no, you're you're spot on. You know, it all ties to the ACE study, right? And when you think about the ACE study and recognizing parental incarceration as an ACE, we think about ways in which any kid that has been exposed to average childhood experiences might respond. So we have a national resource center at Rutgers University. And Ann Edelist Estrin 
you know, one of her quotes that we always talk about, because uh, she also does work for uh, children of incarcerated parents. She says children of incarcerated parents are like some children, like all children and like no children. So we know bonding to kids, you know, that have experienced trauma, you know, it's kind of like the same basic stuff you see for any kids that have experienced trauma or average childhood experiences, right? So, you know, uh, behavioral problems or challenges with sleeping, you know, like whatever, you know, the case may be for that, for for folks that are familiar with that work, I want to say. But in terms of they're like some children or like no children at all, right, comparatively, Children of incarcerated parents have to deal with a lot of stigma, Mm -hmm. especially if the case, for instance, is highly publicized Mm -hmm. as if criminality is uh, contagious. So kids can lose out on their their social network if the the kids are being kept away from from their peers because of what happened. So stigma is huge for children of incarcerated parents. And that, yeah, for sure. I mean, like short-term or long-term impacts, you know, is very, very, uh, very ingrained in uh, the ACE study work. Yeah, it it also makes me think how important it would be for schools. Actually, I'll just call it schools, school districts. The whole, the whole thing need yeah. to be sensitive to the needs of of not only kids who have experienced trauma, but certainly this form. Uh, yeah. of trauma and i'm would, trying <laughs> yeah well i'm trying to get to the school <laughs> well i mean even to think about it a, a young you know a young person who is maybe behaving in ways that schools don't like you know and and that kid gets labeled as problematic rather than this is their best attempt to cope with what's happening to them and and is actually is is something that helps them while drives personnel at schools crazy and mislabel their behavior. So yeah. I, do you work with schools? Do you, I mean, you, you kind of laughed and said you're trying. Does part of your program include working with schools and, and even healthcare providers? Yeah. So we've done, since we opened, we've done a lot of different trainings with uh, different agencies and, actually have a, a training schedule for the fall with some clinical staff within the Buffalo Public Schools, which is really exciting. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, we've trained the the 8th Judicial District. We've trained some Say Yes staff. We've trained some mental health providers and different, you know, behavioral health agencies. So we we love trainings. They're, they're super effective ways of being able to get the point across about being responsive without continuing to maintain the stigma that they're already struggling with, I guess, or the, the effects of the stigma. Yeah. I once did a training for uh, another local nonprofit and uh, one of the staff came up to me and she said, I didn't realize that I was contributing to the stigma Mm with the child that I was working with because I kept saying that their dad was a criminal. Mm. 
And so when you, you, you know, you put yourselves in the shoes of mm-hmm. a kid and you hear like, oh, they keep calling, you know, my dad a criminal. They're a criminal. They're a criminal. Does that make me half criminal? Like, what does that mean for me? How do I respond? You know, mm-hmm. it's like thinking like kids, you know, what, what they know is what they know and whatever else, you know, they kind of make up. So it can be a really, really challenging, for instance, so we have a policy center mm-hmm. and uh, like I was saying, we have the New York Initiative for Children of Incarcerated Parents as a part of Osborne. And our director for that initiative, she always likes to share the story during her trainings as well, because her and I, you know, we both do trainings, but she was working in the New York City education system. and there was this kid that kept getting hurt on the playground day by day. It was this school psychologist that she was working with. So the school psychologist explains like this kid keeps getting hurt on the playground. Like none of the school staff know what's going on. They get the school psychologist involved. And so the school psychologist calls home and says, Hey, they just got me involved. I was just told this kid just keeps getting hurt on the playground. What's going on. And so come to find out. The kid keeps getting hurt on the playground for one particular reason. So what the family told the school psychologist was, well, mom's locked up. But we didn't tell the kid mom's locked up because, you know, they didn't know how to have that age appropriate conversation. So what they told the kid was mom's sick. She's at the hospital. She's going to be gone for a while and we don't know how long. So everybody eventually figures out that the kid keeps getting hurt for a chance to go to the hospital. It's the best way to get to the hospital. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to go see mom. Right. So thinking as adults, right. Like that doesn't make sense, but as a kid, they just know that they just wanted to see mom. Yeah. You know, that's kind of the, some of the stuff that, you know, we encounter or try to try to work through when it comes to, to being effective using age appropriate truth rather than well-intended deception. Ooh, so that's some of the, nice. the work that we uh, really try to focus on when we think about incarceration. Actually, Osborne helped to, to create the Muppet on Sesame Street with an incarcerated parent. So I highly recommend ah. folks check that out. So could I just switch gears a, a tiny bit? Yeah, sure. Because I'm also, we've been talking about kids and children, but what what are the unique needs of moms and dads or partners? Yeah. When, you know, their loved one is incarcerated. I mean, these are adults. Yeah, actually, Osborne has a um, a parenting course called Family Work. Mm-hmm. That one is a prison based parenting program for dad. Um, and they also have family ties, which is a, a prison-based parenting course for moms, specifically at Albion Correctional Facility. So they fly all the kids out for a full day visit so that all the kids can see their mom graduate. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, I think like one of the most effective ways that, that Osborne does 
does this work, you know, for adults is through, you know, that education. Mm-hmm. And that that I'm just like speaking in regards to correctional facilities. Um, well, correctional facility based parenting stuff. But I mean, with with the adults, you know, that can be challenging. We we have a lot of literature and, and helpful information for uh, caregivers. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we also refer to different uh, kinship navigation services. In New York City, there's a fatherhood initiative, which is for, you know, fathers or father figures. You know, to be able to, you know, effectively, you know, respond to the situation that they're in, whether or not that's through you know, a loved one's current incarceration or uh, re-entry because that's a whole thing in itself. Like now you got somebody that's home and you got to, you know, respond to that because that... I mean, even the story that you just told a few minutes ago fits perfectly Mm -hmm. with this conversation. Interesting. We have a partnership with Voice Buffalo and it's really started through our safeguarding work. And... They lead restorative healing circles for children and families affected by a loved one's incarceration, uh, parental incarceration or loved one's arrest. It really started out with arrest and then it kind of just blossomed into this other thing where if you've been affected by a loved one's arrest, you're you're eligible for that uh, that service. Mm -hmm. So. So we have. I mean, it's a it's a it's a family group, but it re- we really we just mostly have adults um, on a regular basis. They come in and they share and they talk about the the ways in which a loved one's arrest and incarceration has has affected them. But yeah, so Osborne has been doing couples work, correctional based. It's not a group, but it, it's a curriculum. Yeah. Is what I'm trying to say. Maybe psychoeducational a bit. Yeah, but I don't know if it's like a formalized program. I haven't heard anything about it recently. So. Well, you know, this may, I'm sorry for interrupting, but I mean, this makes perfect sense to me um, because, you know, a family doesn't stop being a family because one of their members are incarcerated. Absolutely. And you, you know, you've been very good at helping us understand what happens to families. But we also kind of know, you know, to maybe to be guilty of maybe overgeneralizing is we know what helps families do well over time. Right. There's been a lot of research about that. We know that families that do well over time communicate effectively. You know, they express their emotions. They're clear with each other. They they have resilient belief systems. You know, they yeah. I, they have a spiritual belief that allows them um, or religious that allows them to kind of make meaning of, of awful things that happened. And, and we know that how families are organized and how they're structured and what their access to re- all of those things you would think. And you've been talking about that, how you try to foster that while people are being affected by the incarceration in many ways, setting them up for success. I mean, it makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. So now if you allow me to pull the lens out even a little bit further, 
Because, uh, you know, we, we've actually, you know, we, we've kind of touched on micro and, and clearly meso without, without question. But I think it's, I'm not sure it's even realistic to have this conversation without acknowledging the cold, hard reality that we, that we know that people who are poor or who are racial minorities are disproportionately overrepresented in the criminal justice system. Yeah. That's unfair enough. <laughs> it's not like we need any more. But given that lens, I just wonder what you see. I mean, you've already talked about trauma, but I've got to think there's an element of racial trauma here that gets activated. Yeah. And also intergenerational trauma on children and family. So I'm just going to put that right there. And if you're willing or want to comment on that, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Osborne, like I said, is really big on doing work and being responsive to, you know, whatever could exist in the criminal legal system. So like even our mission, you know, says that we challenge systems rooted in racism and retribution. Mm -hmm. So when we think about, you know, the fact that historically, you know, over-policing in communities of color and just different you know, compounding factors on on top of all of that, you know, redlining and just all just all of these different yeah. things that history tells us that particularly affects folks of color that lead many folks of color to be incarcerated. You know, I I definitely see that day to day. Most of the kids in our youth groups are kids of color. Most of the folks that do video visiting with us our folks of color. So it, you know, to to not call it out in terms of the the significant effect, uh, I would be remiss or anybody else would be too to to not recognize that that's uh, a component because it definitely, definitely is. So being able to effectively offer support in in that area in terms of being effectively responsive with the services that we offer. I, I definitely think that, uh, you know, having a very particular uh, focus in terms of providing more support for communities of color is essential. But yeah, that's definitely what I see. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's unfortunate. It's just layers and layers and layers of trauma and oppression that gets expressed in these in these formal systems. And we, we seem to be very fond, you know, that we respond by, you know, removing people from our midst and the midst of their family and and also separate them from the people who care about them the most. And somehow we think. That's helpful in, yeah. in the end. So 
it doesn't seem like it's in anyone's best interest, quite frankly. No. Not even the broader societies, but. Yeah, there's something to that. Yeah, I'm sorry, Dior. Go ahead. I I spoke over you there. Go ahead. No, I was just saying there's so much to that because, um, you know, when you when you talk about being removed as if that's the answer in a punitive sense. And that's kind of, you know, what we were talking about earlier about like the families are incarcerated too. Mm-hmm. our closest female maximum facility from Buffalo is six and a half hours away. Mm-hmm. So imagine like the time, the energy, the, the, the finances that goes into even just trying to see a loved one in person is exhausting. And actually, and you got to have the resources to do that. I mean, even if you could, I mean, it's, yeah, it's insane. Phone calls are expensive because you got to pay. Right. And then like there are apps that you can use. That's also payment based. So like you got to have money <laughs> to be able to like even stay in touch with loved ones and then to also give them money. So they're able to, you know, manage could be a significant burden and like even there was a a law that was put in place the proximity bill um so like proximity is a thing now where if you have a young child and you're incarcerated it's now a law that you have to be placed at the correctional facility that's close to that child within your like security needs so, like the closest max the closest medium but there's only three women's facilities in the state so it doesn't really do much for for moms but yeah i i was gonna say it sounds well intended but accessibility i know is where the devil is in the details right it makes everybody feel good that we've done something when when really there are many many barriers still so, Dior, I, I'm wondering if I could give you the magic wand here. I know that Osborne and in, in your agency also talk, you know, you're interested in the big picture and legislation and policy. I think most, I don't know, I could be getting in trouble here, but most thoughtful people would admit that what we do now is probably not terribly helpful in the end, in terms of how we respond as a society to people who we deem, you know, criminal and choose to incarcerate. What, if you have the magic wand in your hand there, what would you change? What are the alternatives to the way we do things now in the big picture? Because right now, in many ways, you're responding to the the flaws in the system that we have. I'm curious if you could wave a magic wand over anything in the bigger picture, what you would, what you would change. Yeah. I I mean, I would just go with services, more services, more preventative services, more responsive services, you know, being more proactive rather than reactive. And I mean, like even Osborne has like court advocacy services, where like they can like go into court to try to like decrease, you know, any time that somebody can get, you know, or, you know, just making sure that they have all of their needs met, you know, whether or not that might be, you know, substance abuse related, 
or, you know, whatever the case may be, just being able to offer, you know, more support. And even that is more so uh, responsive, you know, as, as, as much as we could possibly get in that. But magic wand kind of sends more services. I mean, that that's kind of why I love social work. Because I think it's a way in which we can see different ways of of being a change agent, whether or not that's from, you know, a micro perspective, a meso perspective or a macro uh, perspective and making policy changes or, you know, whatever the case may be. But yeah, I'm just advocating for, for more. I'm not advocating for burnout. <laughs> I'm advocating for more folks you know, to be able to, to kind of join in, to, to be more responsive in, in whatever the, the case may be, whether or not that's through, you know, housing or food or, I mean, the, the list can go on in terms of need. Well, but more responsive for sure. It's, it's great to, to listen to you say these things. And I, you know, I hope, you know, a number of folks who listen to our podcast are our students who are in programs, you know, in MSW and doctoral programs. And my, you know, when, when you and I met years ago, I recall you as being a fairly, you know, your interests seem to be in, in the clinical realms. And here a number of years later, you are seeing the big picture in a way that, you know, I don't think we could ever teach anybody about. I, I think you, you've just you've just got it. And your comments about social work and you you kind of almost got ahead of me there here. So oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's no, it's fine because it, it's something I wanted to ask you about or ask you to say a little bit more about it, especially we're getting low on time here. Given the work that you do. And the population that you serve, what do you think is the unique role that social work, you know, as a profession and and social workers who possess a certain kind of skill set? What what role can social work play? I think social work plays a huge role um, or can play a huge role. Like, you know, I'm just using Osborne as a model, of course, but it doesn't. This also applies to Erie County services through uh, the assigned council program. A lot of the folks are social workers that are doing a lot of this work. And I mean, (laughs) I'm trying to find a way to word this, but, you know, I definitely think and and I, I don't regret my route at all in terms of developing my clinical skills because they're always handy. They're always always handy. No matter where you are, you're always going to use them. You're always going to need them. And uh, I mean, even though I'm doing this work, uh, I, I still use them all the time. I think social workers have a very unique in particular perspective in terms of response in ways that a lot of other professional backgrounds don't necessarily have or encompass. I think it's a very well-rounded perspective that allows you to think about multiple factors in terms of ways in which to respond. So I'm a, I'm a huge social work advocate. Like folks tell me all the time, like, you're such a social worker. And I'm like, thank you. 
That's right. That's the right answer. For sure. Yes, I am. I mean, when you think about like social work and housing and and courts and the and the criminal legal system and just many different facets, I think it prepares you for a lot of the stuff that you encounter in a very particular way. And like, even when I was, you know, at UB, like I kept hearing like social workers are change agents. And I'm like, okay, like, what do I, like, what do I do with that? And like now in, I'm in my career and I'm like, oh yeah. Yeah. Because there are so many different ways in which we can create change that exists outside of the clinical space that a lot of us are accustomed to being in, which I'm all for it. Yeah. I mean, I, absolutely loved it but i knew i knew deep down in my heart that that community work and and uh doing this work somewhat somehow was kind of what was in my heart so yeah very quickly at administrative level where I, I think, you know, as as distasteful as that can be sometimes, that's where that's the room where it happens and that's where decisions get made. So, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, we're running out of time. So I wonder if there's something that you would like to say or a last word you'd like to get in before we wave goodbye to each other. Yeah. We offer video visiting in 11 different New York State correctional facilities and hope to continue to expand. But we are in Green, Groveland, Gouverneur, Bear Hill, Albion, Clinton, Bedford, Saconic, Wyoming, Collins, and Adirondack. Whoa. So, so for listeners, by the way, who aren't familiar with New York State, New York State is actually quite large almost 500 miles end to end. And, and those places are all over that state. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. And our visits are completely free. So they're at no cost to anyone. And, you know, we just talked about how cost can be significant for folks, but um, our services are free and we have plenty of toys and books and games so that it kind of helps to, to really enrich in the visiting experience. Obviously, it's not, you know, meant to replace anything in person, but it is a nice opportunity for folks. And we also have youth groups. Kids that have that shared experience with one another of having a parent or an immediate family member that's currently incarcerated or recently released. We offer that support to the kids. We meet once a week. They have fun, whether or not that's doing custom sneakers or taking a trip or, I mean, we just took the kids to Detroit like a couple months ago. Like that was like a huge thing. Whether or not they're doing candle make, they're always doing something. I have a really awesome family services specialist that schedules all this really cool stuff for them. And uh, in the fall, we're starting our group for older kids. So New York City has been doing this stuff for what I want to say, like maybe two decades now, maybe. So we're just bringing this stuff locally, which is super exciting. So we'll be able to do stuff for kids 12 to 15. And then the fall, we'll, we'll be starting uh, for kids 15 to 19. 
our services are for those that, you know, feel that this is for them. I've had like kids only do one visit and that was just to, you know, say, dad, I graduated. Like I did something that you wanted me to do that you didn't do. Here's my graduation sign. Sometimes that's some of the the, the pushback and the stigma, you know, that we get of, ooh, oh, we don't need that. I'm like, great. But statistically, one out of two adults <laughs> have somebody, you know, related to them that has been incarcerated. So it's like to be able to be effectively responsive to that is such a need. And it's like, if it doesn't, you know, if you don't need it, great. But you could tell somebody that you know that if they do, that we're here. Dior. Thank you so much, not only for being willing to do this and to catch up, but uh, taking the time to talk about yourself and, and your work. Really grateful. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks again to Dior. The In Social Work Podcast family is Steve Sturman, our media and production director, our graduate production assistant and guest coordinator, Nick DeSmet. Say hi, Nick. Hey, everyone. And I'm Peter Sabota. Thanks again for joining us. And as always, feel free to tell us what you think and comment on specific episodes on our social media and website. We're going to take July off to work on some upcoming episodes, and we'll see you again in August with a new one. See you next time, everybody.